nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Father, we pray that you just bless those words today. I pray for the church here at Eastgate. I pray, Lord, for your anointing, for your blessing, for your Holy Spirit to come upon us. And Lord, as this very letter says, Lord, that your Spirit come upon us, you who work miracles in our midst. Father, you do your work to the glory of your name. Father, I pray, Lord, for your touch, for your hand upon all that we do here. And Jesus, we just surrender it to you. I pray for your blessing and encouragement for every person. And to you be the glory and the honor. Amen. Amen. Uh, Jed, I want to thank you and all the creative guys uh, just for doing all you do. Um, uh, When someone plays Pink Floyd, The Wall, uh, at the start of church, it's always a little worrying moment. Um, But uh, uh, if I can just say uh, the title of what we're going to be doing in this time ahead of us is actually... Uh, called Another Brick in the Wall, and of course not according to Roger Waters, who is actually an ardent atheist, very ardent atheist uh, uh, there. But, um, but with this, uh, uh, we're looking at, um, over the time ahead, the whole issue of restoration, and uh, restoration and, and, uh, and wholeness. And uh, Roger Waters, you know, sang another brick in the wall of just being a clone in the midst of a system. But actual fact, God flicks those uh, bricks that have been abused in a, in, a, in a system and he rebuilds them back into his house for the glory of his name. And that's what we're about. And so uh, I wanted to uh, read uh, uh, this here. I felt for some time a real prompting and leading of the Holy Spirit uh, to turn for us as a church, actually, in our morning services to the book of Galatians, uh, a letter that's just unquestioned uh, by all theologians that it's Paul's letter. Uh, one theologian, Joseph Pippa, uh, put it this way of this book, Galatians is the Bible's great Magna Carta. It is God's declaration of liberty to every Christian man and woman. And it's written, of course, to a people who uh, were in theological ruin. Uh, that's who this letter was written to, and who uh, were being uh, restored back to the grace of God. Now, with this here, uh, you may be unaware, but there is actually probably no other book in uh, our whole Bible that's been more instrumental uh, through uh, the history of humanity of bringing mankind out of ruin than this very letter. Uh, if I can maybe 
put it this way, um, uh, you know, uh, with this here, uh, historically, it was the book of Galatians that actually changed the whole Western world. It was this very letter. Now, you know, if we uh, go and those that know history and and understand the medieval age or, you know, some people call the dark ages. Um, but basically the church came to a place of theological and spiritual ruin, if I can maybe put it that way, at least from the Protestant viewpoint. And one man rose up uh, in that whole economy by the name of Martin Luther from Wartenberg in Germany, and, uh, and he challenged that uh, whole system of where things had come. And it was this very book, this very book that actually so impacted his world and life. In fact, Martin Luther said this, the architect of the Reformation, the epistle of Galatians is my epistle. To it I am wed, as it were, in wedlock, it is my Catherine. That's, that's as he puts it. And, uh, and it was Galatians that became Luther's favorite book. The catch cry of the Reformation was the just shall live by faith, which came from this particular book. If people know historically in the 18th century, uh, the United Kingdom or, or particularly Britain had come to a place of deep spiritual theological ruin, uh, morally and lifestyle uh, within the church. Uh, and one man there at that stage was touched by God. His name was John Wesley. Uh, and John Wesley uh, was revolutionized on this one book. And it became, in fact, his favorite book of Scripture. And this book, uh, John Wesley, in only a very short period of time, is 90,000 people came into the kingdom of God in a one ten-year period. And this book was the book that was driving that restoration out of spiritual ruin in the 18th century, why France was plunging its, itself into uh, the French Revolution, the Age of Enlightenment, and the philosophies of Voltaire as it came to the full fruition. They guillotined 50,000 people in five years in that nation. The creator of the guillotine was guillotined. And in that reign of terror and anarchy, and from that rose the totalitarianism and, and the, the dictatorship of Napoleon. Uh, and, and, and France, of course, was just in, in turmoil in that same period. And at the same time, is in, the, in Britain at that stage, this incredible revival, burst force that still affects our nation today. Many of you are unaware, but I think you would uh, at times have had the door-knocking cultist group the Jehovah Witness come to your door. You know, uh, this is their world headquarters in Brooklyn in New York. And, uh, of course, they are people that we would regard as having a, a, a foreign theology to the true Christian church. Now, what happens, uh, they are a people we regard who actually are in ruins the theologically, if I can put it that way. But in 1980, you know, there was uh, the very men in that system uh, that writes their Watchtower magazines, their Awake, tag awake magazines that are disseminated to millions of people, uh, all within this system of thinking. Those very architects of those magazines in their lunchtime sat down and decided to do a study independent of the Bible Watchtower at lunchtimes in their break between printing the magazines and they would study one book of the Bible together and they would discuss it at lunchtime. The book of the Bible they chose was the book of Galatians. 
And through reading that book, it led to the greatest, uh, if I can say, literally plucking out of that theological world. And Randall Waters, Rob Sullivan, the Sanchezes, their Spanish translators, all these people came to Jesus Christ. And they now become some of the leading ministries to those people ensnared in that movement. But it all happened at a lunchtime study on the book of Galatians. And then a phenomenal, this one little letter, what is done in historically, and I've only just touched on the surface. And so when we come today and we come to this theme and focus that we have in our time ahead, and... Um, and we're looking at restoration. In the mornings, we're going to be looking at restoration from theological ruin. And in the uh, afternoons at Billy Nudgel, we're going to be going through the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to be, uh, and, and the other team members, and I thank God for the team members in this church, all going to be contributing to this. So Laurie Hart, next Sunday morning, will be sharing here in the morning in a part of this theme. I, I've, I've, I've had to swap you. <laughs> He's, he's, he's just in a state of shock there. Uh, that's unfortunately what you've just got to uh, uh, take when, when, when someone else is driving the, the driver's seat. Uh, I'm sorry, Laurie. Um, but anyway, uh, but others are all going to be contributing uh, to uh, this theme. But we're going to be looking at the restoration of people, uh, just not spiritually, but emotionally and physically. Uh, the rebuilding of lives, rebuilding of ruins. Now, it's legalism. It's legalism that has the power to ruin a believer's life. It's legalism that actually will come and will bind a generation up. And, you know, it's, uh, it's that then when you've got to turn to the purity of the gospel. Now, with this here, uh, I just want to use this as an illustration, but... The world in Genesis was judged by deluge. Uh, the scripture says it was destroyed there because wickedness uh, of humanity was so great. And the way I read my scripture, that was a worldwide deluge that destroyed all life on earth. Now, that man, Noah, uh, as he was coming to step out of the ark, wanted to test whether it was suitable uh, to disembark and enter that world, um, which was a, a world uh, that had been judged uh, and destroyed. And he sent two birds. And this is recorded in Genesis 8, 6 to 12. And I want to start here today with what I want to say. is um, He sent out a raven. And so Genesis 8, uh, 7 says, And he sent forth a raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. The raven never returned. It's because the raven loved its new world. It was full of dying and decaying corpses. And the raven just landed on that first corpse and began to feed on dead flesh. And it just said it flew here and there, just from one banquet to another, as it fed on that which was death and dying. And so Noah knew it wasn't ready to exit the ark. And then he waited a period of time, and he actually uh, sent forth... Uh, a bird, uh, which is a dove. Now, I want to say here, in a way, this is a little bit like the picture, how this worked, even theologically, in our world, is the law came first, and the law brings judgment, and it feeds on dead flesh. But Noah waited a period of time, 
and he sent forth a dove. And in, in Genesis 8, 8 to 9, it says, And he sent forth a dove to see if the waters have subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place for the sole of her feet. It's because the dove could not land. It was The world was full of death and dying. And so the dove will not land on roadkill. It will not land on dead flesh. And so the dove found no resting place for the sole of her feet, and she returned to the ark. And so Noah waited a time period again. And as he waited, uh, finally the dove flew. And you might remember it came back with a new olive leaf within its beak. And the first new life had begun on that world, and it landed on that new life. And the dove returned that, and then Noah sent forth the dove, and it did not return again. And in a, in a way, it's like a... a uh, you know, I don't want to press it hard. But it's like this picture that the world uh, was judged and, and the raven, in a way, is this just really uh, uh, dark picture of the law. Uh, and uh, it brings judgment. But the dove, of course, brings grace. And the ultimate fulfillment of that will be when Jesus is baptized in Matthew 3 and 13 uh, to 17. But in verse 16 of that chapter, it just says, when as Jesus was being baptized, you might remember the Holy Spirit came and it says, the Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove and it alighted upon him. And that green shoot, that one of life, the Holy Spirit came fully upon. Now, I, I, I don't want to really force this. What I really want to do is uh, come to uh, an experience that I had many years ago, because it's very relevant to what I want to say here today. My, my background was agricultural science, and uh, I worked uh, often with farmers and, um, and in the world I lived uh, there with people in rural occupation. And, and one time I got involved uh, in the northern tablelands of New South Wales, very what they call the high country, which is above Ben Lomond. So in the northern tablelands, it's the highest area of the tablelands, up around 4,500 feet altitude. And there's these farmers there. But at the time, they were having a dreadful problem with ravens or with crows. And uh, they were illegally trying to kill the crows. And there was an illegal way to do that, but all the farmers were doing it because of what they were suffering in that industry. Now, ravens have another particular penchant than just feeding on dead flesh. They actually, actually attack new life. And when the farmers in September and all those baby lambs would be born, the ravens would fly down on the lambs and they'd pluck the eyes out of the lambs as soon as they were born. And they would consume the eyes of the lambs. And the farmers, when the lambs' eyes, when they're blinded, what happens for them is then the pigs come in and they devour the lambs. And this is another massive problem. The worst animal uh, is pigs because they devour everything. They'll eat all the new lambs. They'll just uh, go on feeding rampage. But a blinded lamb is a destroyed lamb. It's in ruin. And the moment those eyes are gone from that new lamb, is, is, it's, it's to suffer. But you know, the amazing thing about ravens, their nature has never changed. And so when you come to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 30, 17, it actually speaks of this. And it says, The eye that mocks a father and scores uh, to obey a mother. In other words, those that are in rebellion are breaking there the fifth commandment of the ten. It says, Their eyes will be picked out by the ravens 
and it says, of the valley, and then eaten by vultures. And so what happens? Ravens have never changed. And so ravens are always have done this historically. They either land on dead flesh, decaying flesh, dying flesh, roadkill, or they land on brand new lambs to pluck the eyes out of the lambs and to bring them into ruin. Now, that always, because uh, as I worked in that area, it's very disturbing to see that in the natural world. Uh, very upsetting and disconcerting because those lambs are, are in ruin. Now, it's this here, it's this, that I want to draw your attention today is because uh, this is exactly what is happening in this particular letter. Is raven nature has never changed, and neither has the law or legalism has never changed. It always seeks to come on death and what is dying, or it lands on brand new believers' lives to pluck their spiritual eyes from them and blind them and leave them in ruin. And so this is exactly the backdrop behind this letter of Galatians. And the reason that I'm going to uh, uh, seek to uh, unpack this, and, and it deals with a Paul who's exasperated. His emotions just so overflow through this letter. And he's writing to new believers who are in incredible jeopardy. They're, they're, they're brand new believers in faith. And, uh, and it's probably one of the most personal letters he wrote outside Corinthians and maybe the pastoral letters that he wrote. And the tone of concern, his exasperation, constantly overflows in this letter. is because he's trying to shoo away these ravens that are seeking to pluck the eyes out of his brand new believers that have come to faith. They've already landed in the vicinity, and there's literally, and some of them have already plucked their eyes. And these ravens have come in to seek to lead them into spiritual and theological ruin and want to destroy them, and then they'll just be devoured. Now, the backdrop of any uh, New Testament letter, because the New Testament is written in letters, they're letters. And so they follow all a very similar pattern, which was well known in the ancient world outside of in the New Testament. And what would happen if you wrote a letter in that day? You would send the name of a sender. You would put the name of the recipient of that letter. Then you would have a particular form of greeting. In the Greek world, Kyrene uh, uh, was the usual greeting, which is similar to hello or dear uh, in in English world. And then you would give a blessing, and then you would say a prayer. Now, actually, seven out of Paul's letters follow that exact pattern of the 13 that he writes in the New Testament. And so, uh, according to that custom, Paul just writes uh, exactly as, uh, you know, is standard in the world. But when we come to Galatians, it actually is drenched in meaning right from the very beginning. And so this salutation or this greeting that Paul has here in this particular letter, he comes and adds very certain specific information in a certain way that's directly to the problem that I've just talked to you about. And then secondly, he deletes certain things from the standard greeting. It's actually going to jar and shock his readers as they read this particular letter. Now, I'll introduce this because um, what he does is he introduces two major themes uh, here. And the first of this, as he gives this salutation, 
is he goes, uh, he defends his apostolic credentials. There's a reason he's doing that. In Galatians 1 and 1 and 2, he writes, Paul, an apostle, um, apostolos uh, here, uh, uh, it just simply means the one who is sent. Now, an apostle is one who is sent. That's all it means. And it says, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, what happens as Paul is writing this letter, he knows there are ravens in the background. And these ravens, uh, some theologians are called shadow apostles. I like that term. Is in other words, they have people who've come claiming they have sent. They've come claiming they have authority. And they've come to the very churches Paul has planted. And the very churches where people have come to faith, and they are now in their midst. And they're these shadowy apostles. We never find a name of any of them. They're just sort of like there, and they're shadow apostles. They are from the church in Jerusalem. They're from where Christianity began, right there in the very origins. So they are Jewish. They're from the Jewish church. They are affiliated to Jesus' 12 apostles that he established. And so they actually are going to claim that they have the legitimate authority of the church. They believe they are equipped to present the truth of God. And they're going to present that uh, there to the people. And they're going to declare that Paul's gospel is inadequate. He hasn't taught the people properly. And so they are now going to teach these new believers in how they should respond in their Christian lives. And so Paul is going to respond to these people right from the beginning. And he's going, my apostleship, I have been sent, but it's not from men. It's not through man. His, rather, his qualifications have directly come through Jesus Christ. He met them on the Damascus Road. He actually encountered Jesus on that road, who then introduced him to God as Father, something that was a radical concept for Paul, who was a Pharisaical Jew. And he was raised him from the dead. And Jesus had met the risen Christ. And Jesus called him directly. And we can read about this in Acts chapter 9. And commissioned him by the will of God the Father to take the gospel to all the earth. And so he does this. And as a true apostle, he had witnessed the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. But he was not sent from the agency of man. He was directly commissioned by Jesus Christ. And he puts this right up front. Now, what happens is writing to believers in Galatia, uh, to this region. And this has led to a problem, and I do need to just mention it here. So all of you who are non-theological minded, just zone out for a couple of minutes. You can just leave the room, do what you want. Uh, but I am going to just present this. See you, Jet. <laughs> but... If I can just put this out, is this is one of the great debates of the New Testament. Who were these Galatians who received this letter? And with this, what happened is Galatia actually comes from the name Gaul, uh, and Gaul or Celt. And what happened in the 4th century BC, a group of people migrated from France, and they migrated to central Turkey, 
uh, around the region of Ankara, and uh, they established themselves there and were known as the Gauls, uh, or which then became known uh, ethnically as the Galatians, the Celts who lived in Asia. And so uh, there's a whole school of people, and historically this was the long-term view of the church that Paul is writing to the believers in the region of Ankara, to this ethnic group. And, uh, and a lot of theologians spill a lot of ink to go which view they're going to defend, but they believe these cities, Tavium, Ankara, and Pasinus, uh, Ankara, of course, being the ta- capital of Turkey still to this day. Um, and they have various things they use to defend this. Galatia, they say, means Gauls. Uh, Paul traveled there, uh, Acts 16, 6 says he went to Galatia. Uh, Paul refers to the infirmity that he had when he preached to them. And, of course, that's not mentioned in Acts 13, 14. Uh, Galatians 4, 13 says that he had two previous visits. And they say this fits perfectly with Acts 16 and Acts 18. And then the style is the same as the book of Romans. And a theme very much similar to the book of Romans. So uh, they've got to be around the same time and they say the Galatians were fickle. And because of this, if this is so, and Paul is writing to North Galatia, the letter is dated to AD 55 to 56. This is what they say. Now, the second school came along later in history, and they actually went to the land. And they began to look at this and go, well, how does this work? Uh, This must unpack uh, if you actually go to the land and see how this works. And they found it didn't work. And so they came up with another theory called the South Galatian Theory, and they believe that the, the, he's, G, Paul is writing to what's known as the geographical region of Galatia. It's because Galatia is a region. The Romans took the name Gaul and then applied it to a whole region. And so this became uh, included the cities that were actually very uh, uh, anthropologically diverse. And so uh, Poseidon, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derb. In other words, the cities of the first missionary journey of Acts 13.14. And then they present all their evidence for this and that Acts 16.6 and 18.23 refer to actually the regions of Phrygia and Galatia. So it includes all the other peoples, just not the Gaul uh, origin people. And there's no North Galatian ministry recorded in Acts. They say that the Acts only mentions the Southern Galatian ministry. Barnabas is mentioned three times in this letter. He was only on the first missionary journey, so it has to refer to this journey. Uh, there's no mention of the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15 when there's a, revolu- uh, a resolution on the very issues that are discussed in the letter. And surely Paul would have quoted it. And Paul, they originally received him like an angel, uh, and, and Paul mentions that in Galatians 4.14. And in Acts 14.11-18, those at Lystra believed he was God, okay, and worshipped him as such. So they say, this is written to the south, southern believers of Galatia. And then if this is true, the date can be the earliest letter Paul ever wrote, AD 49. Okay, all those people that left the room, you're now welcome to come back. Is that okay? Um, it's because it doesn't really matter, uh, but my preference is that Paul is actually writing for those believers that have come from Acts 13, 14. That's my personal preference. But I'll leave it there. Let me come to the second main issue that Paul presents here in this greeting. He writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, right up front, Paul changes the normal uh, 
uh, Greek greeting, Kyrene, he actually changes it to charis. And he does this in all his letters because he refers to the grace of God. Now, grace becomes a very prominent word in this letter. It'll be mentioned seven times in these particular verses. The NIV will add an eighth one. <coughs> but uh, most translations have seven uh, 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 records of grace in this letter. And so it becomes very prominent is because Paul is going to defend the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. This is what he's going to defend. Because over and against this, there are a bunch of shadow apostles who are ravens, seeking to pluck the eyes out of new believers in the church. And it will lead them into theological ruin. And so Paul is writing a desperate letter, exasperating in his approach, in going trying to keep the eyes of those lambs intact before the ravens do their work and feed on them and pluck their literal sight from their eyes spiritually. Now, uh, Paul will actually, uh, further on in Galatians 5.4, will say this. He'll say, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Law and grace are like oil and water. They cannot be combined. And so what happens, these shadow apostles are here and they are endeavoring to present and complete Paul's teaching on these new believers. Now with this here, Paul uh, comes to grace and he's going to defend this very, very strongly. He raises another word here, arene, is in the Greek, where we draw our uh, woman's name, Irene, from. And uh, it means peace. It's the equivalent of Jewish shalom. May health, wholeness, well-being to your, be to your whole soul. All Jews uh, announce themselves that way. But for Paul, is peace. Peace is judicial. It comes between bringing you into peace with God. So Romans 5.1 Paul will say, since therefore we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and for Paul, uh, peace is something that happens through justification. And so there have, these words become the prominent words. And what he does now is he presents here in several short verses, he presents the true gospel. Because if you want to know what's crooked, you present what's truth right up front. It becomes a plumb line. And, and, and sometimes you cannot see crookedness until you see a plumb line. And when you see a plumb line, you go, dear God, the whole structure is crooked because it doesn't lie. And so Paul presents the true gospel right up front. And he presents this. And so this words that he writes here, he's going to talk very strongly uh, upon this word, uh, justification, which becomes the key letter of the book, mentioned eight times uh, throughout the book. And uh, this, this is a very important word, which just, maybe you can interpret it this way, just as if I'd never done anything. Uh, 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 is, there's going to be a new status come through this word to the believers. And Paul's going to defend this. Faith is going to be very important in its various forms. 26 times in this particular letter, the law is going to be very important in this letter. Mentioned 32 times, nomos. Uh, 
uh, that what these ravens are trying to introduce to these new believers. Now, with this here, Paul just says um, there uh, is, you know, I've been sent from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father. And he holds up this plumb line of truth. And he says, you've got to understand, Jesus Christ gave himself for us. And, and that is loaded with, with Paul. He doesn't write letters from a vacuum. He, you know, Paul, I know, uh, in sitting in the book of Isaiah, Paul loved that book because it comes all the way through in Romans. I think it's quoted just 12 or 13 times in that one book alone. Echoes of it come everywhere. And Paul never wrote anything in a vacuum. When he says this here and he writes, uh, you know, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. And he uses this word, he gave himself. He's presenting the gospel. Is God sent his son to die in your place. And from the book of Isaiah, is the word gospel comes from there. Gospel means good news. Good news. The good news is <coughs> someone has bore the judgment in your place. That is good news. And what happens is this there in Isaiah 53, the main servant song, it just goes over and over again. The servant gave himself, gave himself, gave himself. And Paul just picks this up and he goes, Jesus Christ gave himself for us. We have been set free through nothing we could earn or do. Jesus did all the work and removed our sin from our lives. That is what is good news. And so because of this, uh, it's going to become very important in this letter, Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And you go right back to the dawn of time. Man ate from a tree of knowledge of good and evil and plunged all of humanity into sin. When I do a funeral... Uh, the corpse is either in a tree or on the subcontinent that's put upon trees to be removed from this earth. Man became yoked to that tree. You're all part of a family tree. Begat, 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 but death, 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 death. And you all sit here and only can go back one or two generations behind you. It's because it is a tree of death that we're yoked to. And Jesus came and he died on a cross, literally in Greek, tree. He died on the wood and he died to remove you from that curse, to remove you from that tree that you're yoked to, to bring you to a tree of life. And so the cross becomes a tree of life. And so the cross becomes central in this letter because Paul will even say, as this letter proceeds, I'll boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. There's only one way that I'm going to boast in this world only one thing I'm going to boast about, and that's the cross of Christ. And so Paul is going to defend this fact with all he has as he writes to these young believers. And, and uh, here it says, And Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The word deliver, exara, it, uh, actually 
means to deliver. And it's used in your New Testament in Acts 7.34. Israel was rescued from Egypt. Peter was rescued from prison. Paul was rescued from the mob. And what happens, this word's going to become very important because you need to be rescued out of the ruin and the precarious position, Galatians, where you are at this present time. And the gospel delivers those from theological ruin. It delivers them out of destruction. And what is going to uh, be that which leads them to ruin in their lives. And so to deliver them from the world's destruction, this world uh, is, is Babylon. It, it will be destroyed. The pollution of this world, the, uh, the spirit of this world, the fear that this world would bring on. And this delivers us out. And so Christ has done it all. This is the plumb line of the true gospel. And at this moment, Paul does something really unusual. He just bursts out into a song, glory to God. Uh, it's like if we were there saying a statement and we went, hallelujah, uh, this is good. And he, he bursts out in song and he goes in verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And he bursts into this doxology. Now, normally all Paul's letters, doxologies, come at the end of sections. There's many of them in the New Testament, but never in a salutation. Only place is Galatians. Because as he presents this plumb line, as he presents it, as he hears and states the true gospel, he just goes, glory to God. And he wants to get to the real heart of the issue, but he's just got to sit for a moment and he's just got to praise God and thank God for what is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so at this point in the letter, in our introduction, is every ear is going to just be instantly jarred as they read this letter. Because now, if you're reading a standard letter in the Greek world, now comes the blessing, and now comes his prayer for you. And seven out of Paul's letters will go exactly that format. But suddenly, instead of blessing, Paul pronounces a double curse. It's because he does not like ravens, and he does not like their nature or what they do. It's because ravens want to pluck the eyes out of new lambs and lead them into complete blindness. And Paul, in verse 6, will just say here, and he's going to lead into a section that is unique to this letter. No other letter shares this introduction as this one. And instead of blessing, he goes, I'm astonished. In fact, the Greek uh, means I'm flabbergasted. Uh, for Marzo, I marvel. I'm just at wonder. This cannot be true. This cannot be happening. How in the world, how in the world, Galatians, can you so quickly, so quickly desert God? And, and you know, here, this quickly means rapid. And, and theologians go, well, what's this talking about? Is this uh, referring to since the arrival of these false teachers have come? Is that what's happened so quickly? Is it, is it possibly after Paul and his companions have left that this problem has all gone wrong? Or is it this one? Is it so soon after the conversion of Christ? And I want to suggest to you that is the correct one. Because I found this over and over again in this world. 
is if someone genuinely comes into the kingdom of God and comes to faith, ravens are going to come. And those ravens are going to land at your doorstep. They're going to invite you to a fellowship group. They're going to come and present you, and they're going to say this. They go, oh, yes, Jesus, but. And the moment you ever hear a Jesus and a but, you just heard a, ah, ah, ah. I remember, I remember a little rhyme when I was a kid, and it went this way. I, I, I remember this right from when I was a young little kid. And it went, ah, 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 Clyde the lone back crow in the hot blue sky. Would you dare pluck the sky's gold eye from the cloud's white wool? Ah, ah, if I could, if I could. If I could. Anyone else know that little? I, I learned that from a little ticker right up, and I used to sing that. Ah, oh, whoa, whoa, cries the lone black crow. And I used to sing that all the time. But I didn't realize how true it was. And what happens here is those that are new converted, those that come into the kingdom of God, is ravens come. And they come and they want to pluck your spiritual sight from you. Exodus 32, 8. <laughs> you know, it says, At the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, people said three times over, everything Yahweh said we will do. And then <laughs> Exodus 32, 8 says, They have turned aside quickly. Within six weeks, they made a, a golden calf and they were worshipping a golden calf. Now, that's Old Testament. How in the world can a new believer come into grace and good news and desert this so quickly? How can, how can they do this? How can they desert the true gospel so quickly? The, the Greek word here, uh, this one, deserting, uh, metatithomai. So how am I doing, Daff? I'm not doing too good. Uh, okay. I know a little Greek. She's five foot four. She sits up there usually, and today she's sitting here. <laughs> now, with this here, it means to transfer it to take up. But the word literally means and was replied this way. If someone became a traitor and they moved to the foreign camp and swapped sides, or someone was in a war and they turned all their guns over and then joined the other side to shoot at you as a traitor, or a deserter, metatithomai, is, is, is they have deserted. And the Galatians, actually, the Greek language here, and sorry to raise a little bit, this is, this is important though, it's in the continuous present, which means they are in the process of doing this. It's not completed. They're right in the process of deserting. And what happens is Paul, in exasperation, is going to do everything he can to bring them back to the true gospel and out of ruin, out of losing sight for life, out of coming where ravens want to pluck their eyes and bring them into ruin where they'll just be consumed by pigs. Now, believers are vulnerable. And, you know, it's, we're vulnerable to spiritual ravens. We're incredibly vulnerable. And all young believers 
are this way. You know, I've got a very close personal friend, and I'll never forget, back in the early 80s, my first sermon I ever preached, and he gave his life to Christ. And it was, it was a wonderful moment because I, I came from Hawkesbury Agriculture College. My background was agriculture, and, and he was one of the guys that was in my college program, but he never came to Christ while I was at college. They called my year the revival year. So many people got saved in that year except him. And then we met him when I was at Glen Innes, and, and it's just this glorious moment he walked through, and I thought I'd done all the work, and then you find out all these other people have been sharing with him, and, and you realize, oh, you're a very small cog in the wheel. And, but he gives his life to Christ. And, and, you know, within one week, one week, the ravens flew to his door. And if you knew where he lived, he lived in the boonies, an hour and a half from any town. And the ravens swept into his house, and they were probably the most educated ravens I've ever encountered because I eventually did encounter them to defend my new brother in Christ as they tried to pluck the eyes from him. My friend now is a pastor of a church. He's now grown and influences many people. In fact, he's a chaplain. And, and you know, when the floods were at Grantham, the fires in Victoria, he's the first guy on the ground now that brings healing and wholeness into ruined lives. But he was under threat because they wanted to pluck his eyes from him right there at the start. And the devil always operates this way. He wants to destroy you. He wants to lead you into ruin. Now, with this here is they're trying to present a different gospel, the Greek heteros, uh, where we get heteroxy uh, from in English, just means a different. They're trying to present a different gospel. And Paul catches himself and goes, no, no, no. He says, it's not a different gospel. That's an oxymoron because gospel means good news. You can't have another gospel. And so this uh, euangelon, uh, where evangelism, where we get this word from. And, and so in Galatians 1.7, he catches himself and says, no, they're not presenting uh, another gospel. Is, is what happens, there's really not a, another one. There's not a one another of the same kind as the true gospel because the gospel means good news. So if this is another presentation of the gospel, it's in fact bad news. Really bad news. And it's going to bring destruction into people's lives. And then he says here, he goes, Some are troubling you, Tarasso. It means to agitate, to disturb you. These people are coming and they want to mess you up with another message and agitate and, and, and change things. Uh, in Acts uh, 15.24, it just will say there, since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you. Some people have therefore referred to these people as the agitators. I like to call them the ravens, the shadow apostles. And, and so they want to disturb you with words. I love this verse out of Ezekiel. Because this, this is a prophecy. It's spoken to Pharaoh of Egypt. But man, is it so true in this world. It says here, Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is Ezekiel 32.2. And say to them, you consider yourself a lion of the nations. You, you, you really see yourself as being the authority of the land. But you are like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth. In your rivers, you trouble the waters. You just stir up mud and filth. 
to cloud everything with your feet and to foul those rivers. And let me tell you, friends, there are ravens and they come and they want to foul you up. They want to filth up the waters so it becomes so cloudy that you can't see what's clear and you can't see what it's not. This is what these people want to do. And they want to pluck from your eyes. And then Paul says, but they want to do, they, they don't really, uh, it's not another gospel. They're going to distort the true gospel of Christ. They're going to distort this metastropho, is to change or, or like make a really blurry lens. And so these shadow apostles are most likely the same figures as appeared in Acts 15, uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 17 to 3 to 6, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 11, Philippians 3. And it was a real hassle for Paul. I believe this was his thorn in the flesh. He went out and planted churches. People come to faith. Miracles occurred. Jesus Christ was glorified. And no sooner as he left, and these guys follow him behind to mess up every bit of work and to throw up a whole cloud of mud and filth behind him. And these people, these shadow apostles, all Paul's career dogged him and tried to destroy the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to bring theological and spiritual ruin into people's lives. Now, the approach appears to be the same in the letter of Galatians. I won't go into that now, but let me come here. There's ravens. <laughs> ravens, when they come, they're black. But you can spray paint them white. And they come and they try and present themselves as doves. They try and present themselves as truth. But ravens are always ravens. In other words, they'll use your same language. They'll use your same understanding of the gospel. But they'll redefine all the terms. And what they want to do is they want to substitute law for grace. And friends, the moment people go from law, grace to law, is they begin to lose their spiritual vision of Jesus Christ. They lose it. You know, Jesus said this, Matthew 18, 5 and 6, Whoever receives one child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So right at this point, Paul is angry. He's going to shoo these ravens away. He is so angry at these people that are to destroy the gospel. Teacher, leave them kids alone. <laughs> oh, poor old Roger Waters. He got the words right. He's just got the direction wrong. Teacher, leave these kids alone because he'll defend new believers with all he has. It's the most important thing that we have in this life. And so listen to these words. Oh, this is Paul for you. Uh, you know, in a nice, politically correct, non-judgmental, of course, the greatest virtue in life is tolerance of this age. Unless you, unless you are exclusive, then they become very intolerant of you. <laughs> anyway, with that, but even if the angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. What he does, he throws a hypothetical, and he goes, he throws this out, and he says, if I preach to you a gospel different than the gospel given to me by Jesus Christ, even if an angel should do this, 
And for Jewish world, angels were the mediators of the law of God to Moses. Even if an angel should come and preach another gospel contrary to this gospel, let him be accursed. Now, the Greek's very, very strong. The Greek word is anathema. It means to be cursed, to be moved into destruction. And in fact, it became uh, uh, the equivalent when it was trans- the Old Testament was translated into Greek. They used this word in the place of harem for something that was devoted to destruction. So in Joshua 7, 12, uh, Achan stole a thing under the ban and the whole nation became devoted to destruction, to ruin. And friends, you've got to understand, uh, I won't go into that there, but what happens, it will lead you into ruin. Law, legalism will destroy you. It will destroy you. It will blind you as a new believer. And Paul goes, I've said this before, and just in case you've misunderstood me and you just thought that was a little erratic outburst of a very hot-headed Paul just for a moment, I'm going to say it twice for emphasis. And so here he goes, we said before, you know, in Acts 20, Paul always warned the people of this. Listen to this one, Acts 20, 29, 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw disciples after them. And Paul goes, just in case you missed, and this warning's all through Scripture, I say to you, if anyone is preaching to a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed, anathema. Now, can I just say, uh, I'm a preacher. Man, I want to preach what Jesus gave us the gospel because I don't want to be destroyed and ruined. Can I just say, you can understand, is this is the most dangerous position in all the world because we've got to get it right. Because if I don't get it right and I preach to you something that's contrary, it'll lead a curse to my life and a curse to your life. And this is exactly what these legalists are doing. And so the legalists come and they go, oh, Jesus, yes, but. The moment you hear that, friends, dear God, you got every orange light just thrown in front of you. You know, what's a true Christian say? <laughs> There's only one way, Jesus. You ever seen that? And they come along and they go, oh, you know, we're part of this group. We're a part of that group. I couldn't care less what party, what group you are. If you're a true Christian, you go, what is Christianity? Jesus, one way. <laughs> I think I got it. I think I got it. But they'll always come and go, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, but no, no. You've got, you got, you, you got to join our group. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to be baptized a certain way. Oh, no, you've got to speak in tongues. And you know, you, 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 no, 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 we go. And so what happens is these are ravens, friends. Why? Why in the world, and I'll try and I better finish, eh? Why in the world are we so gullible to these people? Why is humanity so gullible to legalism? What is it in us? What is it that so, so easily led astray into legalism and law? Now, I think maybe there's a pride in us that says, you know, somehow it demands that we've got to prove ourselves. So we sort of like legalism because it's sort of, you know, I can prove myself. I'm a good boy. Get a little gold star in my head because I've ticked all the right boxes. It, 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 
there's sort of an aspect of that. There's another side that, you know, I, I like to be accepted by group approval. Oh, I love it when people pat me on the back and go, I'm a good boy, aren't I? Stuck my thumb in a, in a what was a thing, and out came a plum, and <laughs> I'm a happy little boy. Um, is, is that what it is? Is that we struggle to feel forgiven by God? And somehow we think then we can be forgiven, you know, if we're doing and doing and doing. Is it, is it some reason because we feel inadequate because really underneath we know we all fall short? Ah, I think that's where you're getting close to the gospel, wasn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's about when you're as close to the gospel as you can be. But, or, or is it because we're all little gullible lambs and we're all prone to be as blinded as anyone else? I think we're getting close. So let's come to Galatians 1.10. Paul goes, I'm ne- If I'm now seeking the approval of man and of God, or am I trying to please men? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let me put it into layman's terms for you. These guys are criticizing Paul, and they're saying Paul preaches the gospel only when it suits. He preaches circumcision to Jews. When he comes to Gentiles to please them, he says, don't get circumcised. He preaches the law of God to Jewish people when it suits him. And he teaches Gentiles to ignore the law of Moses. He's not teaching you right. We're going to give you the right gospel. And so, yes, it's Jesus, but, uh, and Paul will stand against that. And he'll come in Galatians 3.11 and he goes, The righteous shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. There is nothing you can add to what Christ has done to you. It's good news. It's wonderful news. It's the greatest news. And we can be brought out of spiritual and theological ruin when we get it right. And so let me just give where we're going. Paul is going to give a personal defense of this gospel of grace in Galatians 2 and 3. He's then going to give a doctrinal defense of the gospel of grace in Galatians 3 and 4. And then he's going to make a practical defense of the gospel of grace in Galatians 5 and 6. Let me read a verse from Isaiah as we finish. And it goes, Violence shall be no more heard in the land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. No more ruin. No more destruction. Because you will call your walls salvation. And in my life and your life, we can become another brick in the wall to wholeness. And so that's what we're going to be doing both morning and evening. Welcome to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, we give you glory. We give you honor. Jesus, we just lift you on high. We thank you for good news. We thank you for the grace of God. We thank you for peace. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your blessing on every man and woman to the glory of your name. And I pray as this great letter has changed thousands, millions through millennia, Father, you would use this letter to change lives right here in Byron, change this site shy to the glory of your name. 
Jesus, we honor you, we thank you, and we worship you to the glory of your name. Amen. Let's sing, let's worship God. something on the net and it's just they likened it to when you get married you have a ceremony and we exchange rings and we get given a wedding ring when we get married and it's like there's times where I don't feel like I love Denise like we've been married over 30 years now and there's times when you're apart you don't feel like it's romantic you know like when you first get married it's just romance, 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 and you get all the goosebumps and all the all the funny feelings inside because your hormones are going crazy and you just love that person. You can't stop thinking about it. And they, you get married and you, you get given a wedding ring. And I was thinking, and this article was saying, well, how do you know that God loves you? Because often we don't feel God's love for us. Often we don't feel love for God. Because it's not feelings, because like with the marriage, you can't maintain romantic feelings forever. But God gave us a sign like this wedding ring. He gave us the sign of the cross. And even though I don't feel God's love for me, and I don't feel like I love God all the time, just like this wedding ring, I can remember the cross and I can know without any doubt that God loves me. Because it's not based in feelings or emotions or romance. Even though, what do you do with a God that would rather die than be separated from us? 
It's not about those things. It's about a truth, a truth, a truth that he loved us so much that he came into this world to die for us, that he wouldn't be without us. And we've heard an amazing, truthful message this morning about the grace of God. But that underlines a truth that he loved us so much that he came. He didn't stay up in heaven. You know, and legalism is like aloofness. Legalism like is a far away thing. Legalism is about trying hard to get somewhere. Striving to be somebody. Striving to attain to something. That's not the grace of God. The grace of God is Jesus has done it all for us. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, my invitation to you is not just take this information you've heard this morning. But my invitation to you is that you invite Jesus into your life. That you invite him into your heart. You invite him in. It's not just about information. The gospel is an active thing we do. It's about taking Jesus' good news and saying, Jesus, I love you. I'm sorry for my sin. I want you in my life. I no longer want to live for myself. I just want to be with you. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Forgive me of all of my sins. Forgive me of all of the things that I've done wrong that have been displeasing to you. Where I've broken your law. Come into my life. Live with me forever. And you may not even feel amazing things at that point. You may feel amazing things. But one thing will be true. The cross of Jesus will be there forever. The cross of Jesus will be there to remind you that if you did that, He did come into your life because the reason He came into this world is so that you could receive Him into your life. That was the sole purpose for His coming. That you would at one point, at one time in your life say, Jesus come into my life at one point in your life you would do that take away all the multitudes for a moment he did it for you take away the masses on this planet he did it for you he did it so you would invite him into your life not because of duty not because of compulsion not because of anything else other than he loves you died for you and he set that cross in eternity to remind us forever how much he loves us
Jesus, amen.